Please take a seat. Good evening, everyone. Let me just add to Samuel's warm welcome. Can I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8? We're going to be reading verses 26 to 39. That should be on page 944 in the church Bibles. And while you're arriving at that passage, let me tell you about what we're doing in these summer evening services. Ordinarily, we preach from a book of the Bible and go through each book verse by verse and chapter by chapter. But that said, as a group of elders, we're always thinking about the best ways that we might help one another connect the dots of all that we've been learning throughout the year in terms of big picture theology and doctrine. And for this reason, we've been using the Heidelberg Catechism as our guide. Um, at camp, Hillary and I were at just a couple of weeks ago, um, we had a Q&A. 35 older teenagers had the chance to ask us any question, and one of them asked, how important are the catechisms, and how many do you know? Uh, great question. Uh, are they simply old and dusty books with archaic language that you're likely to find in your grandparents' loft? Are they man-made add-ons to the Bible? Well, in simple terms, a, a catechism is a teaching aid, a collection of questions about God and humanity and answers to those questions from the Bible. The language might be far removed at times, but their content isn't out of date as they seek to teach us eternal truths uh, of Scripture. You have the question we're looking at in front of you. We read it together earlier. So let's read a, a portion of Scripture that speaks of Christ uh, and some of what that name might mean. So Romans 8 from verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be confirmed into the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, 
For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray for God's help before we dive in. Dear God, please help us this evening to understand more clearly who Jesus is, that he is the Christ. Help us not only to have a better understanding, but also give us joy and comfort and peace in knowing that Jesus is the Christ. Consequently, might we rightly respond to the Christ this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the very first things we do when we get to know someone for the first time is ask their name. This morning, uh, I met some new people at church and names were exchanged. We might follow that up with where they're from or what they thought of the service or if you're from this town, what they might be studying or if you're like me and have a low threshold for pleasantries, you might throw a curveball about uh, a favorite breakfast cereal combination or something like that. Now, names are important. We, we all know that. I know that some of you, uh, as you meet new folks in St. Andrews, take a, a note of people's names so that you don't forget them or because they're particularly unique names or hard to pronounce. Jesus was a, a common Jewish name in the first century, but Christ certainly was not. Maybe, like me, you grew up thinking that Christ was Jesus' surname, the son of Joseph and Mary Christ from the Christ clan in Galilee. Many of us are, are so used to putting Jesus next to Christ that we scarcely know what we are saying some of the time. But first century Jews would have known. And many of you also know that, that Christ isn't a name. Christ is a title. We, we're not left in the dark as to the immediate meaning of the word Christ. The catechism says that it means anointed. Christ means anointed. It is simply the, the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. The Christ or the Messiah is the anointed one. The people of Israel during the time of Jesus knew all about anointing and, and how important it was. Many of their prophets and kings and all their priests were anointed with a holy special oil, and it signified that they had been placed in a, a special position with a special task and given a special authority from God to do that task. But the Christ, however, was more than just one among many anointed ones. That's why there is so much discussion in the Gospels about the Christ, where he comes from, and what he is like, and whose son he will be. 
Peter's confession with which we open the service. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, was so momentous because Peter was stating what was far from obvious to everyone else, namely that this miracle-working son of a carpenter, this teacher who ate with sinners and entertained outcasts, who said such strange and powerful things, this man was the long-awaited Messiah, the bringer of a new kingdom, the deliverer of God's people, and the savior of the whole world. Christ is not just a title, it is the title. The, the catechism specifically says that Jesus is called the Christ because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit. What seems to be in view uh, among many passages is the epic Trinitarian scene of Jesus' baptism. We had that read for us earlier. And unlike the, the prophets and priests and kings of the Old Testament who were anointed by other humans, for Jesus, the heavens are opened. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. And God the Father speaks audibly from heaven and says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The catechism goes on to explain why or for what purpose was Jesus ordained and anointed. It further explains this title and tells us that Christ has what we have come to call a threefold office. We confess that he is our chief prophet and teacher, our only high priest, and our eternal king. So we're going to look at each of those briefly and, and how we might respond to each aspect of Jesus being the Christ. So firstly, the catechism says that Christ is our chief prophet and teacher. In Acts chapter 3, Peter identifies Jesus as God's Christ, the one Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18, and who all the prophets and Old Testament scriptures had been pointing to and waiting for. What does Moses say in Deuteronomy 18? Well, in verse 15, it starts, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them all that I command him. Uh, consider this also. This is from Isaiah 61, which says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And having read those very words, Jesus applies them to himself in Luke chapter 4 when he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. On that same occasion in Luke 4, Jesus will describe himself as a prophet who is not welcome in his own hometown. 
Jesus behaved like a prophet, spoke authoritatively like one. He had lots of people saying, a great prophet has risen among us. The ministry of a prophet included receiving revelation from God, proclaiming and explaining the word of God, foretelling of future events, and confirming of revelation by means of miracles. And if you know anything about Jesus or have read the Gospels, tick, 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 tick. What was crucial in the catechism is the word chief. It's what makes Christianity Christian. Muslims laud Jesus as a great prophet, but he's not the last and greatest prophet like Muhammad. Even in Jesus' day, the word on the street was that he was one of the prophets. But by contrast, for Christians, Christ is our chief prophet, the one and only who makes known the Father and reveals the exact nature of God. The New Testament, uh, the New Testament writers make the, the same claims. In John 1, no one, uh, notice the exclusivity, no one has ever seen God, the, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, meaning Jesus, has made him known. The author of Hebrews says of Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. As a prophet, Christ came to show us the way and declare the will of God. But as the Messiah, our chief prophet, he came not just to reveal the will of God, but to fulfill it himself. And he laid down his life just not just as an example of the way of God, but as the way to God. And I'm sure that the, the natural implication of this truth, that Christ is chief prophet, is that we ought to, to listen to him. God himself this evening would urge you to listen to Jesus, the Christ the only one who fully reveals to us what the catechism says, the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. In other words, pay attention to what Jesus says because his words are of eternal significance and relevance. When many had abandoned Jesus because they weren't fans of what he was teaching, Jesus asked his disciples, will you too go away? And Peter replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus himself said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. My big prayer if you're not a Christian, is that you'll want to listen to Jesus' words. The one speaking is God himself. That's the case that the Gospels make, 
and that the whole Bible makes. And I suspect that if the maker of the universe was speaking to you directly, you'd want to hear what he has to say, I hope. And besides, what he has to say pertains to peace and joy and the way your soul finds satisfaction in God. The manner of his instruction is kind-hearted and wise. If you don't listen to the words of Jesus, of the chief prophet, words to repent and believe the message about him, know that he will not always speak to you. A time might come when he removes his word and voice from you, and it will be too late. For those of us who love Jesus' words, listen to what Proverbs chapter 8 says. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors, for whoever finds life, for whoever finds me, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. I've been reflecting just personally, what is it from Jesus' words recently that I have been neglecting? What of Jesus' words are especially challenging in this season of life and ministry? Uh, the echo in my own head and heart is deny self, pick up your cross, uh, and follow me. Uh, and that's very personal. I've been teaching Mark all year round. Uh, I wonder what it might be for you. Listen to the chief prophet. Christ is, is also our only high priest. Uh, again, the, the adjective chosen by the writers of the catechism is important and consistent with the teaching of Scripture. Christ is our only high priest. Uh, there's a reason Protestants have ministers or pastors instead of priests. It's because of a conviction, a conviction about the conclusion or cessation of the official priesthood. One of the, the main roles of the priest under the Old Covenant was to offer sacrifices to God. And once a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur and make atonement for the people. But according to the book of Hebrews, all that has ended. We don't need any more priests because we don't need any more sacrifices. Why don't we look at a couple of the, the references from Hebrews to corroborate what Heidelberg is claiming. Uh, you might want to jump with me. We're in Hebrews chapter 9, and then we're going to jump to Hebrews chapter 10. So right next to each other. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. And it says... But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, 
not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And just the next chapter, chapter 10, also from verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Uh, the author of Hebrews, the message of that book, uh, one of them is that the only priest we need is Jesus, the Christ, because his sacrifice on the cross was the end of the sacrificial system. Uh, high priests served two related functions, making atonement and making intercession for the people, both of which are accomplished for us in Christ. Uh, we've seen in those passages how Christ's death was the sacrifice, but let's read one of those two references under the second subheading about how Jesus makes intercession for us. Uh, Romans 8, it's the passage that we opened up with, uh, 8 and verse 24, says this, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In the Old Testament, the high priest's work wasn't finished after offering the sacrifice, but had to enter the Holy of Holies with blood in order to sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and burn incense. Similarly, we are declared righteous before God by Jesus' death on the cross in our place. But as the, as the true high priest, Jesus' work continues so that even now the full work of salvation is evidenced in that Christ intercedes and prays for us, even as we listen now this evening. And he will do so until the day he returns. Uh, what does Jesus pray for us? Uh, John chapter 17 shows us that Christ demands the fulfillment of all the promises for his people, both in this life and in the life to come. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is, is our advocate. He pleads the cause of his people against all accusations made against us. Jesus is able before the Father to demonstrate that he has fully paid for each and every sin 
that he obeyed the law perfectly for us, and so concludes that there is no condemnation for his people, but that they have the right to eternal life and joy. And so, in short, Christ died for us once for all, never to die again, and Christ prays for us continually and repeatedly. This makes him the the greatest priest, the last priest, and the only priest we need. And both these points about his priesthood are overwhelmingly massive. I wish I could change the heading under the implication, because I've since changed my mind. Uh, But when I reflect on these truths of Christ's office as our only chief priest, my, my sin grieves me that such a sacrifice was necessary. When you spend hours reading and meditating on the sacrificial system, the necessity of death and the gruesome nature of it all, you can't help but look inwardly. Uh, One commentator, a Dutch guy from a couple hundred years ago, put it this way. He urges us to meditate upon these matters until you sink away entirely in your misery, perceiving yourself as completely destitute and desperate. And I think that is where it often leads us to think of why Christ's sacrifice was so necessary. And yet, Christ died in my place. He stood where I should have and took the punishment I deserved. And as such, God's just wrath for my rejection of him is satisfied. I'm declared righteous and the curtain was torn in two. I can have full access and friendship with the God who made me. I neither know how nor am I able to save myself. I needed another, a substitute, a sacrifice. Praise God for Jesus, the Christ who died for me. We need to look no further than to the only high priest. But on that second part, Christ's intercession for us, Maybe it's my familiarity with the gospel, but in the last couple of weeks, I've been especially overwhelmed by the truth that Jesus continually pleads my case before the Father and intercedes on my behalf. What a comfort it has been in my own prayer life to consider and believe that every prayer, big or small, audible or in the quiet of my heart, that Christ brings each one of them before the Father, and that on the basis of his merits, these prayers can rightly be heard. If we believe this, it should spring forth confidence and boldness in prayer and a comfort in the knowledge that however feeble our prayers are, they will be received. They will be heard. 
He is our only chief high priest. And finally, Christ is our eternal king. A king, you don't need me to tell you, is a person who alone has supreme authority over a nation or a territory. And Jesus is king in that he is God. As God, the Lord Jesus has within himself all majesty and worthiness and glory and honor and power, even if there were no creation or creatures. Other kings have some power over some people in a particular place for some time, whereas Christ has all power over all people everywhere and for eternity. Uh, Kings and rulers are often harsh and cruel, but Jesus is gracious and gentle and faithful, who went and died for his subjects. As King Christ does at least two things, he he governs and guards, and these will be very brief. Firstly, he governs. The the catechism references the, the Great Commission and tells us that Christ governs by word and spirit. Uh, This is crucial. Um, The number of theological pitfalls and errors we'd avoid if we remembered and didn't separate the two. Word without spirit is just dead letters on a page. Spirit without word is hopeless relativism. There'd be no absolute truth. Christ governs us by word, to give us a revelation of his will and an objective set of truths for us to live by, and by spirit, to give us a subjective experience of his presence and the inner power to obey. As king, Christ also guards. Kingship isn't all authority and arbitrary decrees and gloomy threats. Good kings also protect. They protect their people. And in this case, Christ keeps us not happy and healthy and wealthy, but but free. In John chapter 10, Jesus says that no one will snatch his sheep out of his hand. He will not let us fall to the devil, not ultimately, And he will not let us offer ourselves again to the world's bondage, not finally. The good work that God began in us, he will bring to completion on the day when Christ returns. And since Jesus is king, everyone ought to honor him as such. The right response to this king, so loving and glorious, so gentle and powerful, eternal and true, is total, undivided devotion. It is to delight in him and love him. Since Christ is king, we ought to obey him, to submit ourselves to his rule and reign, which is for our good and ultimate flourishing. Since he's king, we can trust him and with confidence consider ourselves safe under his protection. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. 
I've been challenged to think of that list of things that are true about King Jesus. Which ones am I most at risk of neglecting or forgetting? Maybe it's the obedience part. Maybe it's relying on self rather than feeling safe in him. Uh, no doubt it's a combination of all of the above. Uh, I want to offer one last note on these three offices of Christ. Uh, I'm going to steal a little bit of Samuel's thunder from next week. Question and answer 32 of the catechism. That we'll look at next week as Samuel guides us through it. Uses the same sort of language to describe us as Christians. And as little Christs with a small c, ordained by the same Father and anointed with the same Holy Spirit, we are to fulfill in a lesser way the same offices as our namesake. We confess him like, we confess his name like good prophets, present ourselves as living sacrifices like good priests, and fight our mutual enemies and reign in joint dominion like good kings. But as we draw everything together this evening, Jesus, the Christ, the perfect office bearer of these three offices, prophetically calls out his sheep by his word, who in a priestly way gives his life for his sheep, and who royally defends and preserves them so that no one can pluck them from his hand. What glorious truths these are, our prophet, priest, and king. Let's uh, pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, who knowing that he was your appointed and ordained and anointed Christ, still said, not my will be done, but yours. He was faithful to his calling, and as such, we benefit from his sacrifice, from his intercession, from his protection, from his guidance in this life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus, in whom we trust and are so grateful for, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Close our time by singing, All Glory to